We are in the book of Acts, and uh, last week was a major turning point in the life of the church, and you would think that the major turning point was simply because Saul came to know Christ, and I will say that that was the catalyst that God used to completely change the trajectory of the church. And that was a, a huge moment, a turning point. Acts 9 is critical for us to understand why the church expanded at the level that it did. And so what we saw last week was the conversion of Saul. And so Saul was the actual living, breathing picture of, the, of fear in the life of a Christ follower. He was the, 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 the picture of it. You know, if you were to like wrap up in your mind, all the things that you feared most. As a Christ follower in this day and age, when, accident, when, this, when this story is unraveling, the thing that a Christ follower would have feared most was, was all summed up in the person of Saul. He would come into a village that was, that was uh, full of people that had come to know Christ, and he would, he would ram through the door and pull you out and ask you if you believed in Jesus, and if you did, that was it. You were either going if, to, if he felt like he was going to be nice to you, you'd get thrown in prison. But most people got beaten within an inch of their life and then thrown in prison or just executed. His, his zealous uh, attitude was driven by a misguided understanding of who God was. He believed that God was the God of the Old Testament and that Jesus was a threat undermining that God. And it was because the, the system of the day had created rules and structures that, that suited certain groups of people and made rule following so stringent and hard that if you were able to follow the rules that they created, then you were elite. Later on, Paul describes himself as a Hebrew amongst Hebrews, basically saying, and I think I said this last week, basically saying, I dare you to find someone that obeyed the law better than I did. So he sees Jesus and the, the Jesus followers as a threat to the furtherance of what he believes at that point in his life, the Word of God was all about. Now, Paul memorized the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. It was all locked in here, and it led him to a self-righteousness and a pride-filled rage whenever anything didn't match up with what he said the Word of God said. So he knew the Word, and he knew it well. He just didn't know Jesus, the author of the Word. And when you know the author of the Word, it makes the story come alive. So as Saul's on his way, he goes, gets paperwork from the high priest and says, listen, you need to untie my hands here. We need to move this persecution outside of Jerusalem. These Jesus followers are not inside the city alone. They are everywhere. And you need to untie my hands because I think they're already outpacing us, essentially is what he says. So they give him the paperwork and he starts heading into Damascus and on his way to Damascus, towards Damascus, he meets Jesus. 
And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, in this time with Jesus, realizes the, the information that he has in his head. It's like this, this explosion happens and, and things that weren't connected yet are connected. And he sees the truth that he already knows in his head connected with the reality of who Jesus is. And all of a sudden, everything comes alive to him. And he realizes that he was the one that was wrong. And I like what Dusty said here earlier that it says he immediately declared that Jesus was the Son of God. So uh, the thing that 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 they were most feared as a church, as a, a group of people that loved Jesus and wanted to further the message of Jesus and live out the, the, the commands of Jesus, the thing that they feared the most was Saul. And now this guy came to know Christ. And he's preaching Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. And so look at verse 31 again from last week. In chapter 9, by the way, that is on page 634 if you're using the Bible that is here page 634, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Listen to what it says here. Uh, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So what did they fear now? What did the church fear? Well, it wasn't Saul. They weren't running away from Saul anymore. They weren't hiding from Saul anymore. They had a fear of the Lord. They had a a fear of the Lord and a renewed sense of purpose and a renewed sense of boldness and a renewed sense of comfort that they were going to be safe, they were going to be protected, and they were going to be cared for by the Holy Spirit. And if they died in the pursuit of furthering the gospel, the worst thing that could happen to them was they would be put in the eternal presence of Jesus. And it changed their whole perspective. There were no longer fear. They realized they were children of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. So why did the gospel spread? The answer is there. I think it's beautiful. Why did the gospel spread? Because it tells us the first part of 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Why? How? They were walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, what happened? It multiplied. It multiplied. Now, I'm no math whiz. But addition is nice, but multiplication is better. If you say that I'm going to give you a dollar every day, and every day I'm going to give you another dollar, and I'm going to do that for a year, at the end of the year you'll have $365, right? Did I do my math right? Okay. If I, if I said today I'm going to give you a dollar, and every day I'm going to multiply that and I'm going to double. I'm going to keep adding and adding and adding to that exponential form. 
So I'll give you one and then two and then three. So every day of the week, that's how many dollars you'll get. It's just going to multiply fast. At the end of the year, it'll be more than $365. Nope, don't know it. <clears throat> you can do the math later. Right now, there are people in this room that are trying to do it in their head. So it said the church multiplied. So the thing that's happening right now in the church's history is that it is, it is growing exponentially. It's growing fast and it's, it's multiplying. We're seeing that these guys are leaving Jerusalem and churches are being planted along the way. I'm going to uh, show you that here a little bit. It's something that I think is fascinating. So at the end of chapter 9, at the end of the section that we read in chapter 9, Saul essentially has a price on his head. No one's going to pay a bounty for Saul, but everyone in the religious community, apart from the followers of Jesus, want to see him dead. So at the end of this, the brothers catch wind of this, and they sent him off to Tarsus. He spends about four years in Tarsus. And we don't see him for a while. We're only going to see him again as things pick back up in Acts 11, verse 25, when it tells us that Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Saul. But for now, what happens is the brothers catch wind of the threat against Saul, and they, they, they grab him, and they say, go back to Tarsus, go back to your hometown, and, uh, and we're going to get into that at a later date as far as how that time was being spent. So that's where the story picks up today. Saul gets saved. And then Saul gets sent back to his hometown of Tarsus. Now, picking up where we left off at verse 32, remember it says that the church multiplied, and now it's gonna, Luke's going to give us a glimpse of what's happening in the life of Peter at the same time. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the... Now listen, before I go any further with that, just real quick what that means. Do you remember whenever Philip went into Samaria and he was sharing the gospel and the Samaritans are coming to know Christ and then all of a sudden Peter and John show up from Jerusalem and then at the end of that whole exchange, they all go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the base for the apostles. So that's sort of where their base camp is. And so when it says that Peter as he went here and there among them all, what, he's, what that means is that as Peter is hearing of the good works outside of Jerusalem, he is back and forth meeting with these leaders. And as correspondence gets back to him that there's a movement of the Spirit somewhere, he heads to that area. So as he came down also to the saints who, were, who lived in Lydda, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, real quick, uh, this town of Lydda is about 45 miles northeast of Jerusalem. This is not an easy jaunt to get to. Uh, but uh, that's where Peter is right now. He's going in and out amongst the works around Jerusalem, and he's in Lydda, and as he gets there, he meets this man, Aeneas, who's been paralyzed for eight years. And in this day and age, in first century, he would have, that would have been a death sentence. That would have been a, an essential death sentence. And Peter speaks to him, and that in and of itself is humility. 
because he's not grandstanding. You see, I think we could picture that, that maybe Peter gets into town and he says, okay, well, there's paralyzed man. I'm about to do a miracle. Everybody gather around. Everybody gather around. I'm going to show you something. Everybody gather around. Okay, come on, everybody. Everybody, come on. I'm going to do something amazing here. And then he tells this man, get up and walk to draw a crowd, right? Couldn't he have done that? That's not what he does. He goes in humble posture and listen to his words. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. I don't heal you. Peter says, I'm not. Peter's not saying, I heal you. I'm using my power to heal you. I'm speaking this into you. Everyone look to me. He says, no, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And then he says something interesting. He says, rise and make your bed. Rise. He says, rise. Now, if you go back to John 5, 1 through 9, you'll remember that there's a story of a paralyzed man that laid next to the pool at Bethesda. And Bethesda was a natural fed pool. And so every once in a while, as the waters came in, it would ripple the waters and the waters would stir inside this natural fed pool. And there was a a mystic belief at the time that if you were the first one to get into the waters as the water had, had been disrupted naturally, that you would magically be healed. So there were, there were a lot of people in John chapter 5 that spent their time, their whole lives, near the pool of Bethesda. And this man in John chapter 5 had never been able to get his way to the water because he was paralyzed. He wasn't able to get to the water so all those years. And Jesus says the same thing to that man that Peter says, and Peter saw him do it. So Peter is just repeating what Jesus has already modeled for him. He's doing exactly what Jesus does. He commands Aeneas. He doesn't look at Aeneas and says, wouldn't it be awesome to walk? I'm about to do something awesome for you. He looks at him, calls him by name. By the way, we never see this man introduce himself to Peter. Peter just looks down at him and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, why would he say, make your bed? Why would he say, make your bed? It's like, you know, your mom before you leave for school, right? Make your bed. Why would he say that? Now, he's telling him this. He's saying, Aeneas, rise. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, gather up all your stuff. This is no longer your reality, and it will never be your reality again. From this day forward, you are different. You are healed. You are changed. So he's not saying make your bed as in make this area pretty again. He's saying pick up all your stuff because this is no longer your reality. You have been healed. This, you are about to step into a new normal. Jesus' power healed in John chapter 5 through himself. And here it's Jesus Christ healing again, but through Peter. And I think one of the coolest things about this, I mean, one of the many cool things about this this exchange that's happening is that we already know how many times Peter has failed Jesus and failed to recognize who Jesus is in high-pressure situations. And here he is again, and he is being used by God mightily. It's like once the Spirit of God fills us and we allow the Spirit of God to fill us, it literally changes us. Because the stuff people make claims about Peter, the the mistakes he made and the clumsiness that he had, those claims all come before Acts chapter 2. 
We don't see them again after Acts chapter 2, except for one incident where Paul has to confront him on the food he eats in front of Jews. Now, Peter was not perfect, don't get me wrong, but we don't see a disbelief in Jesus like we saw before the Holy Spirit. And he looks at Aeneas and he says, this is no longer your reality. Eight years, Aeneas has sat here on a virtual death sentence. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And it says, Aeneas immediately rose. And then, verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and what? They turned to the Lord. So if the question ever is asked, why when Peter gets into Lydda, did he automatically heal Aeneas? Well, there's our answer. He immediately healed Aeneas because out of that, all the residents, all the residents of two towns saw him and what? They turned to the Lord. That's some awesome evangelism that's happening. The gospel is exploding at this time in human history like nothing the world has ever seen before. It's expanding so exponentially fast that as these people are hearing these stories around, all of a sudden, Peter steps into their village and there are echoing stories gathered around and all of a sudden, Peter steps in. By the way, he's in Lydda and and we know that as he's going in and out, right? So there was obviously some kind of work of the Spirit that was already happening in Lydda or Peter wouldn't have gone there. So as he gets there, there's already a tilling of the soil of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives. They see the miracle done in the power of Jesus' name. And all of a sudden, everything clicks for two whole towns of people. And they turn to the Lord. Now, as if that wasn't enough, Peter's going to continue down this path. And and, in verse 36, this is where it picks up again. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So the next place we see Peter go is Joppa, but he goes there because he is being beckoned there, if you, if you caught that in the passage. 
Now, most likely, Philip brought the gospel here on his way to Caesarea. What we see happening here is there's already gospel work going on. A essential, essentially, a church exists in Joppa. And, and the reason we can say that is because we see Tabitha doing the work of the Holy Spirit and the people recognize her good works and equate them back to God. So most likely, as scholars look and study, the only one that we know for sure walked through that area at this time was Philip on his way to Caesarea. So most scholars believe that the church that got started and planted in Joppa was started by Philip on his way to Caesarea. The more I read in the book of Acts, by the way, the more I'm fascinated with the person of Philip. He just doesn't get enough press. I want to know more about this guy. So Tabitha is doing the work of the Holy Spirit in Joppa. She's providing for the widows, and they, they are just completely distraught with her passing because she's like their leader, right? And so they take her body, and they clean it, and they redress it, and they put perfumes on it, and they lay it in the upper room because that was their custom to handle a dead body. They're treating it with, with, with care. They're treating it with love. And they're weeping. And as Peter gets there, the widows gather around him and they start sharing with him stories about the things that Dorcas made for them and the way she cared for them and the things she did for them and the things she provided for them. They're, they're, they're sharing stories. It's like, it's like Peter walked into a viewing in our culture and people are just in the room and they're sharing stories about the person they all came together to, to mourn the loss of and celebrate the life of. So here's where we, that's where we meet this Tabitha. Now, Dorcas would have been her Aramaic name, just so you're aware. And she was known for her kindness. She's known for her good works throughout the whole community. She's also known as a follower of Jesus. And out of concern for her, out of a concern for what the village impact was going to be, because Tabitha passes, two men travel. And it says... I love how different we view the world than first century people viewed the world because I just want you to see, uh, since Lydda was near Joppa, 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, okay? Lydda is, is 12 miles away, 12 miles away, and these people would have been on foot, right? So it says, because it's so close, we're just going to send disciples down the 12-mile trek down the road. And so out of concern for what was going to happen to the village on the passing of Tabitha, the disciples here get word of what's happening, obviously what's happening down in Lydda, and they realize, wow, Peter's really close to us, comparatively speaking, because we know that Lydda is 45, minutes, 45 miles away from Jerusalem. And now they're only 12 miles from from Peter, so it's actually pretty close. So the disciples, it says there are disciples in this town. Again, evidence that a church already exists here. The disciples that are living in Lydda, in Joppa, I mean, are sending two men down to beckon Peter. And I, it doesn't say why. It doesn't say exactly what. It just says that they urge him when they find him, please come to us without delay. I don't know if these men really knew what they were expecting Peter to do. In my mind, this is the act of grieving people. And grieving people 
are by right illogical people, and that's perfectly fine. Grief makes us walk through things sometimes clumsily, sometimes foggy. And in their grief, they send two people down to Peter and say, come to us as soon as possible. It's almost like they're saying, Peter, we don't know if you can even do anything about this, but just if you're there, can you just be here with us? We don't know what to do. Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. He didn't ask questions. He didn't say, well, what do you expect me to do here? Do you realize it's 12 miles? I'm so tired. Give me a break here. No, it says Peter got up and went with them. And like it says, he got there, he finds the body. Now, there are some similarities here to what's happening between like whenever Jesus heals, uh, brings, brings Lazarus back to life, when he brings Jairus' daughter back to life. There are some similarities here. I think that one of the reasons, I like to believe that one of the reasons that Peter doesn't really have any delay in him in this process is because he's seen Jesus do this before. And Peter, at this point in his life, is in tune with the Spirit of God and is going to obey God. And so he walks into this room and it's filled with grieving people, people that are immensely sad, people that are hurting, people that that are grieving. And they see Peter and they recognize him and they start showing him like, oh, she made me this. Do you see this? Tabitha made this for me. Oh, do you see this? Tabitha took care of this for me. Oh, Peter, she was amazing. I don't know what we're going to do without her. And Peter looks around the room and he says, I need everybody to step out. And I'm sure with puzzled glances, they all decide that they're going to listen to Peter and they step out. And he kneels down next to the body of Tabitha and he, what? He prays. He prays. Now, notice that he did not go to the person of Aeneas and immediately pray. That's not what he did. But he knelt down next to the body and he prayed. And in that moment, I believe that Peter was discerning from God and the Holy Spirit what God would have him do in that moment. God, will there be more glory given to you through this person's death or will there be more glory in her having breath brought back into her body? I know you are capable of this. And he looks at her after he prays and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. Think about that. Now this woman, I don't know how long she was dead but it was 12 miles to get to Peter, 12 miles back, and she was already dead before the men left. They had already cleaned her body. They had already uh, perfumed the body. They had already laid the body down so that they could grieve. So I'm not sure how much time has passed. I don't know how, how long. I know that I would travel 12 miles on foot a lot slower than David Clapper would. So I don't know whether these guys are running at a David Clapper speed or an Adam Johnson speed, but either way, it's not going to be a very fast trip. 
he sits down next to the body and he prays and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41, it says, and he took her hand. He gave her his hand and he raised her up. Now, this is a beautiful symbol because do you remember back to Aeneas when Peter says, rise and make your bed? He's doing the exact same thing to Tabitha in this moment. By taking her hand, he's signifying and making a gesture that she is no longer unclean because if she was dead, she would have been unclean and unworthy to touch by someone who was supposedly a religious leader. So Peter is making a symbolic gesture by grabbing her by the hand and saying that she is no longer unclean. She is alive. There is life in her. She is truly risen. And so remember that she was no longer, she's not just alive, she is whole. In verse 37, it says that Tabitha became ill and died. Now, if he just brought her back to life, but, the, but, but what was wrong with her was not restored, she would still be sick, right? There would still be something wrong with her. But when he brings her back to life through the power of the Spirit, he, she rises and she is whole. She's no longer, uh, she's not just alive, she's no longer sick. Whatever killed her is also gone. Whatever put her down is also eradicated. She is whole and breathing life. Verse 42, well, verse 41, when it says, He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Imagine the shock, awe, and joy that existed in this moment whenever the woman they were all just mourning over is now stepping out fully restored and alive. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So why did, why did Peter do it? Why did he do it? Verse 42 gives us our answer. Many believed in the Lord. Why would Peter do this? I'm sure there were people dying all along the paths that he was walking, in the churches that were being planted, in the bodies that existed. There were probably many people dying. We don't have record of a whole lot of people being brought back to life in the Bible. So why Tabitha? Well, it was because in God's infinite wisdom, he saw that the gospel could advance more through this woman's life than through her death. So as it became known throughout all Joppa, many believed in the Lord. See, you and I are like Aeneas and Tabitha. We are in need of a deep and total healing. We have a sin problem. We have a disease in us, and it is killing us. It is rotting us away day after day after day, more and more. Some of us feed that disease more than try to eradicate it, but we all have the disease. It's called sin. Aeneas's uh, body was broken and paralyzed. Tabitha was dead. And these two people were 
fully and completely restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were, they were told, this is no longer your reality. Make your bed. Clean this up. You don't live here anymore. Tabitha, you are no longer dead. You are no longer sick. You are alive. You are breathing. You are healthy. You are whole. Now go back into this community. Paul tells us about this in Romans. He says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you understand what that means for us? It's that while you're dying of the disease of sin, while some of us are feeding that sin all the more, that does not negate the fact that Jesus died for you. If we're in this room and we are completely running in the opposite direction of God's grace, if we are running towards anything that does not bring honor and glory to God, that does not change the fact that Christ died for you and I. No matter what we're doing, no matter what we're entangled in, it does not negate the power of God's mercy and grace. And maybe today He wants to look at you and say, get up and walk and clean that mess up because that's no longer your reality. You're not that guy anymore. You're not that woman anymore. Don't go back to it anymore. That's not you. You no longer, Aeneas, you no longer have to sit here and beg as a crippled human being any longer. You are restored. You are healed. If you stay here, you're choosing to stay here. You're choosing to live like you're crippled when you're not crippled. So clean up your mat, get your stuff, and let's go. And when he looks at Tabitha, he says, you are whole, you are alive, and she gets presented to the town again. You don't see Tabitha say, I kind of liked that bed. Could you lay me back down and, and put that stuff on me and cross my arms and lay coins on my eyes again? That was great. You don't see Tabitha say, I really liked being dead. You don't see the town people say, oh, this village was so much better when she was dead. Life by the Holy Spirit being brought into this woman is what brought more life into the whole community. Do you see the connections? If we were to read that story and it gets revisited and Peter goes back through Lydda and when he gets down to where Aeneas was, he finds him again and this time he's sitting on his mat next to him. Peter says, what happened? Did you hurt your legs again? Are you paralyzed again? He says, no, 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 I just really like it here. I really like it here. I'm going to sit like my legs don't work anymore again. What do you think Peter would have to say about that? 
But when people heard of the work of God and saw the evidence of it in the people of God, what happened? People came to know Christ. When, when Aeneas got up and didn't revisit his squalor, when, when, when Dorcas rose from the dead and went back out into community and didn't revisit the grave, people came to know Christ. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit lived manifest in His people, and people of God were being changed by that Holy Spirit day after day after day, and the church multiplied. This section ends with Peter staying in Joppa with a man named Simon, who is a tanner. This would have been a guy who was considered unclean because as a tanner, he was taking care of all of the dead animals and, and taking their skin so they could do stuff with the animal skin. So his career made him unclean, and, and Peter decides to stay with him. So it's a clear message that this pathway to the gospel is for anybody. It is open to any and all living, breathing human beings. You have access to a holy God who will fill you with His Spirit and take you away from your squalor. So don't live in it because you get to live in the power and the beauty of the Holy Spirit residing in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us. So when you walk out the doors today, whatever you were, whatever you were, whatever squalor you were tempted to live in, whatever sin struggle that, that you're completely okay with, maybe it's not even a struggle anymore. Know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us. It's available. If you're here today and you've never experienced it, today's your day. If you're here today and you've experienced it and it doesn't feel like you're alive, that's not God's fault. That's not your circumstances' fault. Rise and make your bed. God, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for how it fills us and how it makes us new. Thank you that, that we have that same power living in us. Well, you do so many cool things with, through, through your people, and, and the church is just growing like crazy. So, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in the people at Journey Church. I'm thankful for how your spirit is moving and working in the life of your church. And I pray that your grace would abound all the more as we live in that reality and that beautiful truth that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave and the same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. So I pray that we would be the people that hear you today say, rise and make your bed.